Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey everyone, welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the talk now, leave later, or stay and talk, or what the hell, talk and leave edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, we welcome back Jeremy Edelman, an historian and author of Worldly Philosopher, The Odyssey of Albert O. Hirschman, which is my favorite biography of an economist, and to be honest, it's not really close. Albert O. Hirschman was such a fascinating thinker, and nobody understands his life and his thoughts better than Jeremy Edelman. And in this episode, Jeremy and I talk about Hirschman's most famous work, Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, which was published in 1970. Now, this is a book about the relationship between, first, exit, or the idea that if you don't like a company's product or if you don't like the organization that you're a member of, you can, of course, buy another company's product or join a different organization. And second, voice, the idea that you can complain from within instead to try to change things for the better rather than leaving. Now, these sound like obvious concepts. But stick around, because Hirschman teases out some fascinating nuances about the way that these two forces interact. And Hirschman would later write a follow-up essay called Exit Voice in the State, in which he applies these lessons to countries and governments in addition to companies and political parties and other organizations. And Jeremy and I discussed that essay as well. Here it is. Jeremy Edelman, welcome back to the show. Always fun. I don't know if you're as excited as I am to talk about Alberto Hirschman for a second time. This is part two of Hirschmania. Uh, since you spent such a big chunk of your life chronicling his, I hope you're as psyched as I am about what we're going to discuss here today. I am, actually. I, I, I mean, I, I wrote the book now. It, it feels like so long ago. It's not, of course, but but so much has happened in the last few years, uh, some of which we might actually get to and where what Hirschman would say about <laughs> recent events, that it's nice to take a voyage back to his voyage. This is, uh, I said, part two of Hirschmania. I didn't say it was the second and final part. So we actually might be back because there's so much to cover here. Odysseus had to cover a lot of ground. (laughs) Indeed. The topic of today's discussion is going to be Exit Voice and Loyalty and a short follow-up essay he wrote much later on called Exit Voice in the State. Uh, Let's talk about the first book. I'm going to open with a kind of a perilous question, which is, what do you think it was in Hirschman's life that inspired the writing of Exit Voice and Loyalty? What experiences were formative to developing the ideas in this book? I'd say there were a couple of things going on. There was a a deeper uh, strain of concern that had been lurking in his mind for many years. And I'll get to that in a second. But the most immediate thing was that he had been working on a project to assess World Bank projects in the developing world in the mid-1960s. It eventually came out as a little book uh, about the World Bank called Development Projects Observed. And in the process of doing the research on that, he had gone to Nigeria to look at an investment uh, venture in a railroad extension line in a remote part of uh, Nigeria that the World Bank had funded. He had gone out, interviewed uh, actors on the ground, took notes. You can read his field notes. They're, uh, as usual, amazing. Uh, I mean, he was a, an anthropologist as much as he was an economist. Took lots of notes down, writes out the report, gives it to the World Bank. It becomes the book. And, you know, he focuses on the railroad. The book comes out, and the Biafran Civil War erupts. And um, he's shocked. And actually, the, you have to remember when that civil war breaks out uh, in 68. 
nobody had quite seen. It was so televised. It was a very mediatized event. It really changed global humanitarianism in a way. Jeremy, can you actually take us through a little bit of the background to that civil war and what it actually was? And, and it was what a the civil war. Was yeah, it was a civil civil war that overlaid with a tribal regional war within Nigeria involving a secessionist, and here comes the exit side of the story, a movement feeling that staying within and we're going to anticipate a whole cycle of failed states and what's a state and the scale of states, in, in, I'm sure, uh, down the road here. But a breakaway faction uh, wanted to secede. The military repressed it very brutally. And, of course, the people caught in between became humanitarian casualties. So while this is all unfolding, what's on Hirschman's mind, it's on the television, it's on the front page of the New York Times. I was just there, and I wrote this book about this. And as a social scientist, I saw none of it coming. What's the point of our social science if we can't see these things coming? And since he was always an empirically minded guy in the sense that our theories should be checked against what's going on in the world and our theories should be derived from observations of what's happening in the world, this revealed a gap in his, the way he liked to think of himself and also posed certain questions about the, what's not just the utility of the models but the morality of them. And, of course, all around him at the very same time, civil rights, from Martin Luther King and, and the assassination of Martin Luther King, the student movement, anti-Vietnam, and the consumer movement. And so all around him, he was looking at heightened degrees of what he will call the practice of voice, right? Trying to figure out what's going on out there. Exit, voice, breakdowns of systems, how people were responding to these. He had been concerned for some time, and it will materialize much more explicitly later on. I hope we can get to the German translation of this book, uh, which happens right around the time that that essay about exit voice in the state comes out. But of course, he's concerned about the responses to the rise of Hitler and to the rise of fascism, and why the Europeans of all kinds responded in ways to the threat of fascism. Uh, that they did, uh, and he's trying to. He's still, in you know, many decades later, still trying to reckon with it, and that had been plaguing him for some time. So there was an immediate issue, and there was a question about what was happening to the developing world, and then there was this longer term thing about citizens and how citizens respond to authoritarian turns. Let's do some quick definitions. Exit voice and loyalty. When we're talking about exit, right, what is Hirschman specifically referring to? Uh, and then let's do the same thing for voice. So it's, it's, it's a famous trilogy. Exit is the practice of departing from your association with allegiance to habits of certain kinds of uh, attachments to uh, institutions. So it was the separation of Quebec from Canada. It's the decision of uh, American draftees to leave, to go to Sweden or to Canada. It was leaving the system. Or in consumer terms, it was deciding to stop buying a Chevrolet and start buying a Honda. Exit was, he would eventually call, the, the market option. It was the economical solution to the problem of decline of organizations, which is you give up on the one that you had previously been attached to and you attach yourself to another. It's the market solution to the problem of deteriorating organizations. Remember the subtitle of the book. So everybody remembers the title. It's a famous trilogy, but it's, all, it's responses to decline in firms, organizations, and states. So exit is, my response is to buy somebody else's car, to buy somebody else's toilet paper, or to buy somebody else's country. And voice. Voice is the political option as opposed to the economic option. So it is the practice of articulating within the system your concern, your opposition, your discontent to those organizations, firms, and states. The classic examples are uh, civil rights, I mean, that was the one that was uppermost on his mind at the time, but there were many others. And in some senses, the 1960s was the decade of voice and people 
actually talking about finding their voice, right? And what was he, he was signaling was f- finding all of this is in response to a perception of decline, as opposed to the 1950s, the quiet decade of consensus where there wasn't a lot of voice because there wasn't a lot of decay or perceived decline of organizational life. Yeah, so you mentioned a second ago that exit is usually what we think of when we think of economics, the model of perfect competition. I don't like this product or the price is too high, so I'm going and I'm going to buy somebody else's product, right? Voice is associated with political science because when you think of politics, you think of uh, protests, you think of people campaigning, you think of quite literally voices, right? Hirschman was kind of annoyed that there was this almost myopic focus in each of those social sciences. He thought that economists could also learn a lot from the interplay between exit and voice, and he thought that political scientists could learn a lot from the interplay between voice and exit, that these things were complicated, that you couldn't just settle for what was simple. Correct. That, I mean, that, that there's both a relationship between the practices, and in one case— it's the practice of exit and the art of voice, and I hope we can get to you know what he means by the art of voice, that these are raveled together in really complicated ways. But the point you were making first is actually a really important one, which is that he has a notion that we've created these really siloed disciplines in the social science of political science and economic science, and they're not as it were, talking to each other. And they have a lot to say to each other for their own benefit, even within the terms of what they think of as good for the discipline. So he's already trying to hit the blender and say, we need to put some of these concepts and uh, the way we organize knowledge together and see what we come out with. We can come out with not just a interdisciplinary mash, but we can come out with a much let's say, larger sense of what constitutes political and economic man uh, and, and what the drives are um, that, that, that motivate uh, this historic agent. I want to now read from the introductory chapter in the book the questions that the book was trying to explain. And I say trying to explain because there isn't necessarily a definitive answer to each of these, and he makes that very clear. Uh, but these are the questions uh, that he's trying to address. So here they are, quote, Under what conditions will the exit option prevail over the voice option and vice versa? What is the comparative efficiency of the two options as mechanisms of recuperation? In what situations do both options come into play jointly? What institutions could serve to perfect each of the two options as mechanisms of recuperation? And finally, are institutions perfecting the exit option compatible with those designed to improve the working of the voice option, unquote. And here's where I think we need to start talking about the mechanism of recuperation uh, that he mentions in those uh, questions in that quote, right? Hirschman's point was that too often, especially in economics, it's sort of assumed that companies are always optimizing their performance, that whatever it is they do, they're trying their damnedest to do it as best as they possibly can, whether that's maximizing profits or just creating a great product. And he says something similar about other kinds of organizations too, that they're always trying their damnedest. Hirschman argues against this, that it's nonsense, that all you have to do is look around, that a certain amount of slack is always present in any organization, right? And so how is it then that exit and voice and the interplay between those two things help lead a company or an organization or an institution or a political party to start to recover. And that, I think, was the key thing that he was addressing in the book. Absolutely. That responses to decline have lessons in them. Our reading and understanding of what's going on have lessons in them for how we can get organizations to recover. Those recuperative mechanisms uh, are, are really, that's he's actually trying to get there as a goal. And the reason why he's trying to get there as a goal to pull back, you have to remember, and it takes us back to the Weimar Republic and and his, you know, progressive reformist middle. He's trying to argue. It's a little elliptical in the book, but if you put him in context, it becomes a little clearer. He's trying to argue that reform is possible, that you don't have to take either the revolutionary road 
So again, put him in context. It's the late 1960s. Uh, some of the people that he's spending a lot of time talking to are his colleagues in Latin America, many of whom are saying enough with peripheral capitalism. It's time to overthrow it. Look over there. We have the model of the Cuban Revolution as a path we might want to take towards development. And he's trying to say, no, there is a way to keep your hope in the possibility of reform, not just possibility, but necessity of reform. Right? So these recuperative mechanisms to bring attention to them because that's without them, the decline becomes the telos that we put in March, right? The teleology that's going to unfold if we don't watch it. So he's got his eye on them. And of course, he's got his eye on his own students, right? Who are taking over the buildings at Harvard Yard. They're, you know, he is slightly concerned that the left is going to increasingly pivot to a position where it gives up its reformist credential. And that the possibility of, uh, you know, let's say radical reform, uh, even if LBJ is no longer in power when he's writing this, of course, he's, when it's published, the elections are, are over. But already that New Deal coalition is coming apart. He's trying to make the case for deepening in, in a sense. So the reform is very much tied to this, and it's the necessity of reform. In our last conversation, uh, you described Hirschman as essentially our best economic theorist of reform, but you also emphasized his own focus on the hidden, the invisible, and the idea that when there is slack, when there is uh, an organization or a company that's not maximizing its performance, that's not necessarily a bad thing because when circumstances change, it can then activate its reserves in order to get back to some kind of an equilibrium. This is a fascinating point, I think. That, that we're never really living at what's called the production possibility curve or function. And so we can always push things out. So there are two models of growth. The one is to push the production possibility function out, and one is to try to get there. In a way, his theory is that we're always inside that curve. We're not at capacity. There's always slack. We could always re-engineer things. But in order to know how to do this, uh, without deeply modifying the system, in order to know how to do this, we have to in a sense, see that there's much more room for maneuver. We don't live in a tightly wound, taut system where if you move one little part, everything will fall to pieces. And that institutions are very elastic and can grow and can adapt. At the same time, always there's a flip side in Hirschman's story. There's a dialectic. At the same time, they can become very ossified. They can get very immune to the, to the forces of change. Well, I'm sure we're going to get to that. And they can bring decline upon themselves. It's not just decline because somebody else has become more competitive. It's decline because you've become lazier. You're, the quality of what you're trying to sell on the marketplace has, has deteriorated. And then you get other forms of, of, to call it decline isn't quite the right word, but forms of stasis that are just downright oppressive. And so there's a lot of discussion here about totalitarian systems of rule and the, the role that voice and exit play or cannot play in those sorts of systems. In a minute, I want to start talking about the interplay between those two things. But I want to read one more quote about this idea of a taught economy, because I think it gets to Hirschman's, again, deep frustration with the economics establishment of the time. Here's what he writes, quote, This image of a relentlessly taught economy has held a privileged place in economic analysis, even when perfect competition was recognized as a purely theoretical construct with little reality content, unquote. I like this because it shows that right at the beginning, Hirschman is setting us up for something of a wild ride. Like this is going to be something new, this idea that he's proposing, the idea that it's not just by customers exiting 
that we can or that companies end up reforming themselves. And it's not just by people switching political parties that political parties reform themselves. It's in fact this relationship between those circumstances where they leave or where just some of them leave and those circumstances where they're more likely to stick around and try to voice their disapproval because those are the instances where that strategy is going to have a better effect. That the market mechanism isn't the only response to deterioration. And what's more, the non-market responses to deterioration can be good for the firm. What you just described, the, the, the letter you know, complaining about the quality of the car that I just bought, just because Hirschman loved cars. He was a terrible driver, but he loved cars. He kind of observed the automobile industry and looked at auto ads. And because the whole dust-up around Ralph Nader's campaign against the Corvair really caught his eye as, as a car person. I call him a car. He's not a car guy in the sense he doesn't read car magazines and things like that. But it's an industry that interests him because these are costly, durable goods. Right? There's certain rigidities built into the automobile industry. It's hard for a customer to trade out the Oldsmobile for something better. So he's interested in rigidities. That's why the market doesn't always work. But also this voice can be good for the company. If the company is open to thinking about itself that way, as listening to this art. So there are ways, and that's part of the recuperative mechanism. But So there are rigidities, and then there are downright obstacles. Right? There are rigidities in the way uh, firms listen to and adapt to that mean the market doesn't function uh, as well as the model of perfect competition would suggest. And then there are just simply structural obstacles to mobilities of the agents themselves. So the market option, exit, presumes that exit exists. And in some sectors, even some sectors of the economy, that's just not there, right? And so the market metaphors uh, have declining returns. Now, it's worth saying, just to put this in a bubble, I'm sure we'll get to it, but so does voice. So it's not as if the political response is like always the solution to the problem. They always yield re- diminishing returns, and that's when they need start to need each other. You had this, and maybe we'll come back to it, I keep saying that, but sometimes exit and voice are substitutes for each other, and sometimes they're complements for each other. I think you know he's got both of those potential conjugations in mind when he's thinking about this. And they exist sometimes in a very kind of uneasy tension as well. Uh, he brings up, I'm going to tease this a little bit, he brings up later in the book the idea that uh, when exit is available, right, some exit option is available, it can actually help activate voice. But if too much exit option is available, then the organization just collapses because nobody's still a member or nobody's buying the product. But if not enough exit is available, then voice sort of loses its power because nobody has to care what you think. And there's a, so there's this elusive, what I think he calls it the elusive optimum. The elusive you, optimum? Yeah, that you really want the right combination, but that combination moves around all the time. That's why you need information. That's why you need open communication. It's why you need pluralism. And you need to study these things. Always be attentive. Always be observing, mm-hmm. right? Because that equilibrium point is never a static. It does not stay still. We live in a capitalist world. Everything's very dynamic. Technologies are changing. Products are changing. Markets are changing. States are changing. That no company can afford, no government can afford to just stand still as the American automobile industry kind of showed, and assumed that its its reign over the global market was going to be eternal. I want to introduce here, interrupt the conversation in a way, to introduce uh, two kind of modern-day real-world examples of areas where institutions or organizations uh, essentially started to call forth reserves that weren't visible before the events actually happened, uh, but that became visible afterwards, in which I think illustrate what Hirschman was talking about. But one of these in particular, I know you're going to have an opinion on. All right. So I've got one example from uh, the marketplace and then one example from the world of politics. So the marketplace example that I thought of was the fracking industry, because in 2014, the oil price essentially started to collapse. And a lot of people thought that that meant that 
with a sufficiently low oil price, it would no longer be efficient or worthwhile for the fracking industry to keep producing oil the way it had been because there's a break-even price. So for our listeners, this means that if, for instance, the price of oil dropped below, say, $70, right? Well, the cost of producing a price of oil might have been around there, so it stops being profitable. Well, the cost of oil plunged by, I think, you know, 60% at its nadir, right? And it turned out that what happened was not that it passed through the break-even price of the frackers. The break-even price itself started to move because the frackers started calling up efficiencies that they hadn't been exploiting before. It became way more productive because they'd essentially been a little bit slack, right, to that point. It helped them react to what had happened to the change in the world. They called forth those reserves. Now, here's the non-market example, the one from politics that I'm going to ask you about. It's an easy one, right? The election of Trump and what happened with Brexit, okay? In a way, you could see these instances. I guess some of this depends on your political point of view, but you could see both of these events as essentially a failure of sufficient voice, right? And if you do see it that way, then the reaction to it, I think, demonstrates a kind of recuperative mechanism, right, where you see, for instance, some institutions acting resiliently, right, in the areas where they've been tested, or you see other countries reacting to what they saw in the UK and the US and acting differently. I want to ask you about that second point. What do you think Hirschman would have made of it? And what do you, as a historian of these things, think about it? Well, I think both examples are are fascinating and very well chosen. I think the general point about slack, meaning that there is unused capacity in the system or in the state, right? Reserves of human, physical, financial, intellectual resources that we don't tap into, that we could do, that reformists you know, should look around and consider as, a, as an underutilized resource. Why? Because sometimes you don't have to be so utopian to make change happen. The answers and solutions to some of the quandaries lie right under your feet. Sometimes, you know, you just have to drill right there to to solve the energy crisis. Um, So that there are things you can do. So in that sense, he goes back to something we talked about in the last conversation, he was a kind of pragmatist, right? What can you do? Well, unused capacities are the first things you should go for. Why go, you know, shoot for the moon? She was always telling his left-wing friends, uh, yeah, it's an easier solution right here. I know it doesn't sound so glamorous, right? But what if it just happens to work? So on both the the market and the political examples that you you gave were were terrific. Of course, the irony in the case of the fracking industry, you know, from the point of view of 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 the coal industries, that's what really deep six them, Mm -hmm. right? If if uh, if there was something that really turned the economy off, dirty coal, it was the marketplace and not the regulators in some senses. And there's a, a lesson about how market forces can be used to combat issues around energy uh, uh, usages. Of course, it posed certain problems also for the drive to get off carbon sources for for heating and for for automobiles and so forth. So the, the 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 push to renewables also took a bit of a hit along the way. But it's a good example of uh, people finding solution. Again, this is a trope of Hirschman's, right? That people will find ways to solve problems that the great social engineers can't always be in control of uh, and that we need to observe and take advantages of things that people do, that the change can often come from the bottom up including market solutions, which was somewhat heretical for lefties, right? They don't want to think of the market as a, as a problem solver, right? It's the problem maker. On the politics side, again, a very good example. I mean, I think a lot of people's first response to Brexit and, and Trump, part for good reason, because they, they're going to mess up the world, uh, in, in, in my view. And yet at the same time, they were a corrective to people who seem to think that the model of what we now, I guess, call globalism was everybody felt like this was working for them. And it turns out it wasn't. We sort of knew that. 
but we didn't listen to the people who were disidentifying with that way of organizing life. And then the question becomes, back to your recuperative mechanisms, do we take the shocks as opportunities to rethink the relationship between economic policy and and citizens? And I, I mean, I think those are the questions we're now, you know, if, if, if we could get some of the headline news off, you know, to downplay that, we could have a real conversation, which is the kind of thing that Hirschman would want us to have. Yes, this was, this was democracy. This was voice, um, latent, quieted, uh, but bubbling up that had been off the screen and now is there. Right? Now it's there also on the side of the forces of liberalism, though, right? In other words, they've seen what's happened, and they're snapping back. In some senses, they're snapping back. Uh, they're snapping in all kinds. I mean, everybody's snapping back. <laughs> you know, what has been unleashed, you know, has some upsides. It's corrective. And again, to go back to what Hirschman watched unfold in early 1930s in Germany, some practices of voice can have very odious effects. So you have to be very careful with this game, right? I mean, all of the people on his side, uh, I mean, he was a member of the Social Democratic Party in, 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 in Germany as a teenager and an activist, they really did not think that the National Socialists were going to take power. And even once they took power in January of 1933, they were, didn't think that they would stay in power. And so that's there's a dark side to all of this. So how how to be able to finesse you know what you can learn and adapt and recuperate and recover, uh, while at the same time dealing with the dangers uh, is a little, where we're at right now. I should note that Hirschman was alive to that possibility. Sometimes he talked about effects. He didn't say they were always going to be benign effects. Yeah, and he he he, it's a gentle critique of those who want lots of voice uh be careful uh, it not only yields diminishing returns but lots of voices start bubbling up not all of which uh share this ground of recuperation of the system as a whole right? some of those voices want to destroy the the whole there's also another problem with voices you can sometimes just overdo it i mean he was very fond of this saying of oscar wilde's Oscar Wilde is asked why he's not a socialist. And he says, because it takes too many evenings. All the blah, blah, blahs of those socialist meetings, of the committee of the this and the council of the that, you just you can burn yourself out, right? So, and that comes brings us to the art question. It's a very refined, you have to almost... Treat it as, as as a work of art. It's something that needs practice. It's a muscle. And you can stress it out and you can let it go at the same time. It brings in insights from psychology, not just from the other social sciences or the, the quote-unquote the harder social sciences like economics and political science. Hirschman was very careful not to leave out that strain of thought as well. Yeah. I mean, he, he'd been reading psychology – from the late 1950s, uh, social psychology in, in, in particular, you know, he, he, he had his eye trained on human behavior early on. It was important for the earlier work, although much more subdued. By the late 1960s, the behavioral strain in his thinking has really grown. In fact, when he goes out to Stanford, he's originally invited out to work w with a team of political scientists at the Stanford Center for the Study of the Behavioral Sciences. And in fact, he, you know, he has some relationship with the political science, but who really interests him when he's out at Stanford, because he's a professor at the time at, uh, at Harvard, who interests him are, is this team of social psychologists, a guy called Phil Zimbardo and a few others, who are doing experiments to find let's say, the foibles in human behavior, cognitive dissonance, and how we frame things, just anticipating Danny Kahneman and others, is, is, is important to conditioning the things that we do as, you know, as economists would say, incentives to do things, right? So he's trying to get at that game that we're playing also in our own heads, which is a game. 
why framing reform as a possibility is right up front for him. I want to talk about another theoretical point he made about a market economy, um, and it gets to his views on exit specifically before he introduces the interplay between exit and voice. Uh, And I really like this example. He says that the ideal mix of customers for a company is that some customers should be, and I'm using his terminology, alert, and some customers should be inert. In other words, you should have some that will leave, abandon the company the minute the product gets a little bit worse or the price goes up a little bit, and some that will stick it out. And of course, this can exist on the spectrum. And his thinking was, you need the feedback mechanism. You need the information that's given by the alert customers who leave. But a company also needs time to recuperate And that's given by the cushion of customers that will keep buying the product for at least a little while. I love this insight because it sort of gets at how Hirschman thought of the diversity of human behavior and why he was so, frankly, pissed off. I think I can read through between the the lines that economists had ignored that for so long. Yeah. All right. All right. Which – I mean, we've talked a lot about exit. We've talked a lot about voice. But there is the third of the trilogy, which is loyalty, which is, which is in a sense, the hardest of all of them for him. But we need loyalty, a lot of loyalty, something we always we, – we both the political scientists and the economists took for granted. He had a hard time with it himself, frankly, but, but you needed that reservoir because at the same time, institutions – were really important. You can't just break them down and tear them, uh, or break them down and rebuild them at the same velocity. And this is what I was getting at with these rigidities and these inelasticities that, that, as you put it, takes a while for an organization to recover, for a state to recover from a shock, you know, of an earthquake mm-hmm. or a hurricane. And so you need to have reservoirs there, right? So it's the flip side of unused capacity. Right. If the unused capacity, if the slack gave you room to move things around, also understand that there's a limit to how much you can move things around and how mobile institutions are. Take some time. They are inelastic beings, some more than others. Right, And he's thinking a lot about monopoly at the same time. Some, in fact, are natural monopolies. And how do we handle those? They're the most lead-footed of the organizations and how much time do we give them, right? It's a bit of a problem. But the loyalty is the substratum that we all need. There was one other thing that he introduced into the conversation that I want to ask you about, which I loved, because to that point, traditional economic models focused a lot on charting, for instance, price against quantity, so that if price went up, then you know a customer might go to buy the products of a, co- of a company that kept the prices the same or whatever, Right. Hirschman thought that we should also have some way of understanding quality changes, right? And not just in the sense of adjusting the price, right, like to to reflect changes in quality. He thought that different kinds of customers would respond to changes in quality differently, right? And I love this idea too because it sort of clearly had to come from a very wide-ranging mind. And it was something new at the time, I believe, right? And he even tried to, you know, formalize it. But it also led him to make some observations that were really interesting about the idea that the customers that would abandon or exit a company based on a a higher price, for instance, are different from the customers that would necessarily abandon a company if the quality fell. And those were the ones that actually you wanted if you were a company because those were the loyal ones. Those were the ones that cared about the product. I I think you you underlined an important force in all of this. So he, the other thing he's trying to bring in to the story, uh, which was also something relatively new. I mean, it had been around, but now it was getting mainstreamed into the social sciences here, is consumer theory. In a sense, almost pushing away from thinking about economies around, organized around the agent and the supply chains on the production side towards the consumption side. The social scientists have been moving in that direction, but he really brought it into psychology, political science, sociology, insights that were coming from some of his colleagues in economics to how to think about behavior 
and people's responses in these complicated ways and trying to get inside their, let's say, the motivations and incentives to behave the way that they behaved. And not always to assume, for instance, that exit is the same thing, right? So there are lots of, of ways of thinking about the consumer in a much less, let's say, socially pathologized way, which was what the current was by the 1960s. You know, we were, everybody was becoming alienated and uh, um, the consumer was dominating the citizen. And citizenship was being degraded as consumption was being inflated. And he's trying to say, actually, uh, there's something in the role that consumption plays, which can also function as a corrective to citizenship. Right? So even our two ways, the, the, the citizen consumer exists as a hyphenated entity. He's trying to bring that concept in as well. And this also, by the way, created a lot of complications for the interplay between the public and the private sector. And I think this is where we can start talking about the Nigerian Railways example that you brought up at the very beginning of our conversation, the example that inspired the book in many ways, right? The Nigerian Railway sector was, of course, part of the public sector, right? And it turned out that its performance was degraded by the introduction of competition from the private sector, which you would think would inspire it to do better, and it didn't. If anything, it reinforced its own deterioration. Right. I mean, that was a case where private roads came along and truckers uh, were draining traffic away from uh, the railroads. Um, The railroads, in response, the service deteriorated, the freight rates went up and bred increasing uh, hostility, um, particularly among the people who could not switch from the trains to the trucks, and that that had been one of the material sources of of the conflict. One sector that was on his mind very much at the time in this public-private complicated mixture was, of course, schooling. And um, there he's concerned with the double-edged sword of moving towards vouchers, moving towards applications of consumer choice to to schools and in fact to the whole idea of what is a public good right and whether we should be applying market concepts and metaphors to this space of what is public good so we have to be careful about when we want to put these together when they're good complements voice and exit And when sometimes they're in competition with each other and they can really drain away a vital resource that is a truly public one that we don't see as a public one or or, or performs a function in society that we don't really understand. He was uh, especially worried about the possibility of exit in these examples where you had both the public and the private sector tackling the same issue, right? In the case of the railways, it was that people with money could afford to take trucks and buses or whatever the private sector alternative was. In the case of schooling, it's that the kids in public schools, right, that had to stay would stay, right? But that if the quality of the public schools deteriorated, then it was the parents with resources who could send their kids to private schools, which drained from the public school system what would have been a very useful presence of voice, of powerful people complaining to make it better and to hold people accountable. If anything, it essentially acted as a kind of uh, valve of you know, that, that led to the release of what would have been a, a vital resource. That's right. And that, that's exactly right. So it's, it's, it's the example of where it could go wrong, right? That the exit option actually takes away voice from a sector that really needs it. We can give a positive version of this, which he talks about, and it's been the source of a lot of discussion, which is how migration from Europe in the 19th century actually had a positive effect on voice. And in some funny, perverted way, helped usher in liberal democracy because it functioned as a safety valve when uh, Europeans and Scandinavia and Germany and elsewhere moved to the New World to settle and to colonize that released some of the excess population to go to the frontiers and created a 
unintended effect down the road of deepening the American cult of the exit option. <laughs> might want to talk about why markets have become more fixated as solutions to problems in the United States as opposed to other uh, societies that may have their own myths of voice, let's say. But in any event, here was an instance where European emigration in the 19th century released the social tensions, reduced class conflict in Europe, and allowed European societies to make the transition from closed, aristocratic political arrangements to more open, pluralistic, and democratic ones. So there is the good example for him of where exit enabled the cultivation of the art of voice and institutions organized around that. So he was always aware it could cut both ways. In the middle, of course, for him, when he's thinking about schooling and the deterior potential deterioration of schooling, is what are the conditions of equality and inequality in the allocation of the ability to voice and to exit? So if the powerful ones are the ones who exit, those powerful ones, right? If 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 you have an underlying unequal situation, they're the other ones that take the exit option because it's say the most efficacious of the two between voice and exit. That's going to take power out of the very people that those organizations need to hear in order to have the recuperative mechanism uh, work. I, I had mentioned this earlier, and I'll talk about it now because it's re- relevant to this. So. In a few years, a German publishing company asked him to write a, a preface to the German edition of Exit Voice and Loyalty. And uh, in the first draft of that introduction, he, for the first time in his life, talks about what drove him from Germany in 1933, what drove him to take the exit option when he's 17 years old. Right, so he's graduated from university, graduated from the gymnasium. He's uh, an undergraduate student at the University of Berlin, studying economics. Uh, lasts for one semester. The university, for all intents and purposes, doesn't function. It's been taken over by Nazi youth, which I always take as an example to remind my students: don't think that the left has a natural monopoly on student mobilization. And he leaves, and he reflects decades later on this exit option, and it it writes in a very self-incriminating passage about how he feels that the departure of young, what does he use this term, young, virile Jews, upper class, well-educated, the first departure of them meant that the very same people who might have mobilized public opinion to oppose more effectively national socialism, were now out of the scene. They'd gone to France, they'd gone to the United States, they'd gone to Great Britain. And having taken the exit option, they reduced the voice within Germany that might have helped correct the way in which the political spectrum was lurching ever further towards totalitarianism. So, and, and he, not to say that this was what was happening in the United States, but he was aware of the downsides of the exit voice how they can get uncoupled. Yeah, and how those two things can go in either direction. Uh, I want to kind of ask you a question about your own experience as a historian of Latin America. It sounds like uh, you've probably studied many examples of the latter case where exit essentially led to the emigration of the people of means and of the people with the kind of formidable background, well, that's the wrong way of putting it, but the people who actually could have been a force inside the country for reform and who can blame them for having left, but at the same time, it reinforced the more you know tyrannical or dictatorial regimes that were still there. Right. They also use it, let's say, repressive regimes can use exit options to their own advantage. Fidel used to do this uh, all the time and let entire boatloads of people go at certain points to diffuse social conflict within Cuba. That's uh, one example. At the same time, there are always counterexamples of when it swings back and has the other effect. Actually, Hirschman watched this firsthand in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell because it was, in a sense, the exodus of East Germans through the spring and summer of 1989 that put so much pressure on 
the East German government to have to deal with the problem that it was exit that almost brought down the regime. We don't think of it that way, but exit can sometimes have, whereas the Honecker regime had really imagined this was a way to release the gas, it came back and, and helped bring him down because the scale of the migration was such. And of course, Assad, it's playing right now in Syria in his favor. The release of 5 million Syrians or the expulsion of 5 million Syrians may in the long run have helped him stabilize his regime now that it's a puppet state of its neighbors. I want to talk about exit and voice in the context of political parties. Hirschman had this really funny quote that I need to set up here. He was talking about the uh, Herald Hoteling model of political parties, which essentially just said that if you think of political uh, ideology or political partisanship as being on a spectrum, well, let's say the Republicans are, are on the right and the Democrats are on the left. Well, the people to the left of the Democrats are effectively captured, right? They're not going to vote for the Republicans. And so the Democrats can start aiming for the center. And of course, the same thing applies to the people to the right of the Republicans. And so according to this theory, both parties would over time become more centrist. They'd fight over each other. And a lot of political scientists bought into this model because it was elegant and it seemed to say something true about the world. But Hirschman looked around and essentially said, well, this is kind of bullshit, right? Uh, Except that he said it much more elegantly. Here's how he said it, quote, The success which this elegant model has had, particularly among political scientists, is matched only by its failure to predict correctly the actual course of events, a fine illustration of the Street and Kuhn maxim that a model is never defeated by facts, but only by another model, unquote. <laughs> I just love this quote. <laughs> well, if it, what, 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 now that we're going to go down this rabbit hole, I mean, I mean, he will eventually, he will even boil that wonderful line down to something even more economical in a few years and, and call it his number one rule of the social sciences, which is that the minute you think that your theory has great predictive powers, it's obsolete. It's over. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's done. Don't get too caught up in your fancy concepts. Look, it's 1968. I mean, he has watched the breakdown of the New Deal coalition, right? And the defeat of the Democratic Party, the, the, the sham in Chicago. You know, again, don't assume that these structures have a propensity to restabilize themselves. Don't assume markets autocorrect for the economists and for the political scientists. Don't assume that convergence is always the natural order of the rules of the game. And this is his liberal reformism, right? It's why you have to change all the time because if you assume convergence and equilibrium, convergence on the political side, equilibrium on the economic side are the natural laws of motion yeah, you're sowing the seeds for lots of future problems. Right. What I love about this, too, and you just described it, was that Hirschman is now setting up a model whereby both companies that do have a profit motive and also political parties are doing more than just either in the case of companies maximizing their profits or in the case of political parties maximizing their voters or their members, right? They're also minimizing discontent. And profit or member maximization is in a constant struggle with discontent minimization. And there's a reason for it, which is that the people who are right now members of your party are tangible. You can see them. You can hear them, right? Whereas if you start moving to the center or if you start changing your products or whatever, you now introduce conjectural uncertainties. You don't know if that's going to pay off. And so you have to listen to the people who are already there. Voice has to matter. It can't just be about trying to capture those who are exiting from your competitors. I love this idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we could riff on about what happened in the elections last last fall on this score, right? Who are you listening to? Are you even listening? Or are your models telling you, well, we, we can go on about that. But <laughs> I, I think that's a lesson that, you know, it maybe every political cycle needs to remind itself. You know, one might say that, you know, Donald Trump exploited the failure of both political parties to get it. To understand that relationship, you mean, that interplay. Yeah. 
you said something earlier that touches on what Hirschman wrote about towards the end of the book, which was the kind of American obsession uh, with exit or exit as a preference to voice, right? This has all kinds of interesting ramifications. Can you just kind of take us through some of those? You know, so so it's it's there is a a let's say a strain in American what's called exceptionalist thinking that argues that uh, the United States was naturally endowed with a set of ingredients. Some of them were material, like the open frontier. There was a whole theory of the called the frontier thesis. What was the feature that distinguished American social development from the time that colonization began right through to the 20th century was the access to open land. So if you didn't like the situation, you could always go out to the frontier and get your homestead, 40 acres, and chop down the trees and become an independent farmer. And that uh, theory of the frontier creating a democracy made of middle-class farmers was you know, baked into the master narrative of American history for a long time. Then it would be kicked around and debunked, but it's very strong in there in the mythography. So there's there's, there's kind of the material theory, and then there's an institutional idealist theory about America being born with scope for voice, right? That America was born liberal, born tolerant, born pluralist, and with, if you didn't like it, with an ability then to... March, right? The the Mormons being an example, for instance, and, and, and create your own political community, a spiritual community somewhere else. And so, exit as a solution to problems was um, was loomed very large in the story. And our next frontier is space, and and Americans appealing to this idea that that is a, a solver of problems meant that the art of voice got somewhat underdeveloped or or we don't think of ourselves nationally americans don't think of themselves nationally as great practitioners of art right we're good at the market solutions to problems and he thought we got a little over infatuated with this idea so he writes this essay about the the american myth and the need to correct it with other kinds of myths. And he was interested in myths, right? and, and that we need to perhaps create a myth of Americans as voice people too. And that we, if we can bring together these two stories of Americans as exeters and Americans as voicers and make it part of a complicated, unstable narrative that weaves into the American character, that would be a more useful history, he would say, for the present. Possibly also a more would lead to a more sustainable future and even a sustainable belief in that original myth if we didn't take it to such extremes. That's right. But like the exit option works at its best when there's voice and vice versa. So if you can, if they can correct each other under the right circumstances. And of course, in the late 1960s, one of his concerns about the exit is you know, what, copping out, dropping out. I mean, he is concerned that lots of people are going to get so disaffected with the system, as people used to call it in those days, that they'll just go off and take drugs and drop out of school and cop out, drop out. I don't know, I can't remember the slogan <laughs> from the late 60s. I should remember it, but I don't. And that for all the noise that's being made on the streets of Chicago, that might be masking a more underlying problem. Uh, which is about the privatization of our discontent with the system, uh, that we need to be careful. There's one other way in which he describes the problem of overdoing the individualist part of this narrative. And he says that we so often think of like the kind of great story where somebody escapes from their lot in life. And we love these underdog stories of somebody who is born in poverty or born to an underprivileged class and, and, Donald and Trump elevates could get that themselves. Story for himself, you know. He would love it. Solve all <laughs> his problems. Maybe he wouldn't be so pissed off at everybody all the time. Uh, good point. Good Don't point. We should just, kind of <laughs> just, just give it to him. Just rewrite say, it. Right. Just let you have it, man, right. and leave the rest of us in peace. <laughs> but uh, Hirschman's point was that by putting so much emphasis on this 
in some cases, literal escape from the class, we forget that actually there's a usefulness to whole classes being elevated from their underprivileged position. And he says that this is maybe one of the reasons that the black power movement was so resisted. Uh, I mean, that, that's a complicated story itself. Yeah. But the point is that we should also be trying to elevate whole groups when we see that the typical member of that group will have it much harder than the typical member of the more privileged classes. And we are sometimes stopped from agitating for that change precisely because we overemphasize the story of an individual escaping from the group. That's right. And that's why it goes back to his his concerns about equality and excessive amounts of of inequality. You know, there's a question, you know, when is inequality acceptable and not acceptable? But he is concerned about the ways in which it can degrade the institutions. And and so the flip side of the frontier myth and the exit option is the other classic question is why no socialism in the United States that that sometimes you want and needs, as it were, socialist solutions, socialist in the sense of egalitarian solutions that lift everybody up. They don't necessarily close completely the gap between the haves and the have-nots, but they're concerned about the bottom, let's say. And the absence of that you know, had some corrosive effects on American society. And just at a point in the 1960s where it looks like we might have the possibility of raising that floor up a little bit, yeah, it's starting to run into problem. And he's concerned, you know, don't give up now, right? You know, the great society, we can't let this be stillborn at birth. Jeremy, we actually covered throughout this discussion some of the topics in Exit Voice in the State. So rather than closing by talking about that, uh, I want to ask you kind of a personal question to close instead. Mm-hmm. Hirschman died, I believe, about a half decade ago, just as I think your book was about to come out. I guess I just want to ask how you how you remember him now that a little bit of time has passed and how you see his influence on on your life. Hmm. Uh, you didn't tell me you were going to ask me this question. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about yeah uh, complex communication systems and things like that. We don't. Uh, yeah, you know, he had been fading for 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 quite a while. I mean, in a way, he was not really with us for the last few years of his physical life. And and in a sense, I I got to know him really through his 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 wife, Sarah. I mean, here's an actor. I mean, Sarah man, they married during the Second World War and they stuck you know, through all kinds of, of upheavals. Uh and then in, uh, many years later, and this was in the early '90s, he had a, a he had a stroke and an injury, and and began to recede at that stage. And she lost some contact with him. I mean, he receded from everybody. And as she, he drifted away from her into his whatever was happening in his own mind, that's when I started to work on the book. So I caught the tail end of his when he was still fairly articulate. And our interview, by the time the interview cycle was ending, I mean, I was re- I was kind of losing him. But I was gaining Sarah. And also Sarah was regaining him through the course of the research. So one of the things that we did for several months, Sarah and I sat down once a week and read through his daily letters that he wrote from the front uh, when he was an American soldier during the Second World War. And I recorded her reading the letters to me as she was recovering also a history of a relationship with him and his thoughts about war and and organizations. Um, You can't leave the military. There is no exit option there, right, which posed all kinds of issues for him because he was a very unhappy soldier. And it was very clear in his letters. He talks about his depression. And and then how that wove into my and at the very same time I'd, I'd leave reading a letter with Sarah and then I'd go and read his book and think about what was happening in his mind. I'd, I'd say like an honest answer. This is probably not what you were expecting from an answer, but I was for many years obsessed with him. I mean, I I felt in order to write a book about him. I was inside him. He was inside me. Even though he was no longer able to talk by the very end, I was constantly trying to think about how the world was looking through his eyes. I would walk around Paris and trying to, I'd look at his house in Berlin, what was left of it, 
And um, since the book was published and, and since Albert died, that whole chapter in my life closed. I didn't have access to that anymore. The book was done. It was out. It was his new life and it had a life of its own. And I kind of think that Albert, when he he was the one who planted the seeds, frankly, that I write the book, not explicitly, but in his stealth way doing it, that I had to say goodbye. And I miss that. I mean, that's gone now. I can't recover that feeling of of being all consumed. And all the writing projects that I've had since then haven't played the same function. At the same time, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think we don't have figures on our intellectual landscape right now that write with a combination of passion and concern about the important things in our world with access to, let's say, the West's body of cold centuries of knowledge accumulated. I mean, he really represented the end of a generation that could still read 19th century French novels and consumer theory and put them together in a way that anybody could read or almost anybody could read. Uh, we just don't have them anymore. And I just, I, you know, how we muddle through the predicament we're in, in part needs ideas and new concepts and new ways of thinking. Uh, and uh, those are hard to find nowadays. And I miss it. Jeremy Edelman, what a pleasure. Always fun. Everyone needs to immediately go pick up uh, Worldly Philosopher, The Odyssey of Albert O'Hirschman. Easily has been and still is uh, my favorite biography of an economist. Thank you very much. And that is the end of my chat with Jeremy Edelman. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one because we are based in the U.S. Email us at alphachat at ft.com or go to ft.com forward slash alphachat for show notes to this episode and all other prior episodes. Thanks to Douglas McClure from Spain, by the way, who pointed out that ft.com forward slash alphachat was not working last week. Amy Keene, of course, got it back up and running. So if you go there now, you'll get those show notes. Leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. I know I bang on about this again and again, but it's a really good way for other people to find out about the show. And we see every single review and every single rating. We really appreciate it. And finally, if the amazing Amy Keene, the producer and editor of this podcast, were to ever exit, I can tell you that my voice would forever be strained and broken from the heartbreak. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.